Hello everyone, welcome to the Writivism Podcast. I am your host Esther. This episode of the Unbreakable Bond series was recorded at Berlit Festival um, and it was the Unbreakable Bond's launch. It had our fiction editor Sumaya Lee and fiction contributors Asha Mohamed and Marcel Mateki Akita. We also had our non-fiction contributor Lydia Kakwera Levy. Hello everyone and good morning and welcome to Between the Continent and the Diaspora. Unfortunately, Esther Marembe, who has spent the past four months preparing for this event, is unable to be with us today, thanks to borders and bureaucracy. So a big boo for all of that. No, seriously, boo, really. I mean, it's so annoying. But thank you, for all, thank you all for being here today. Um, as she said, my name is Sumeya Lee, and I am the author of The Story of Maha and Maha Ever After, and I am honored to be representing Writivism here today. Um, I first got involved with them in 2014 uh, when I volunteered for their mentoring program, and I loved what they were doing. It totally aligned with my beliefs as a writer, and I have been a part of Writivism ever since. Um, for those of you unfamiliar with us, the Writerism Literary Initiative is a Uganda-based pan-African initiative that supports emerging writers on the continent and promotes African writing through our literary prizes, online mentoring with established writers on the continent and in the diaspora, a writer's residency program at the University of Stellenbosch in South Africa, and an annual literary festival in Uganda that involves outreach activities in schools and hospitals. We have... Um, from the anthology, two of, two of our fiction contributors, Marcel Akita and Asha Mohammed, and in the middle we have Lydia Levy, who has written a non-fiction piece. Um, they will then introduce themselves and read uh, from their work. We will follow that with a conversation, which I hope you will participate in. Um, <clears throat> I've had the greatest pleasure in editing the fiction component of this anthology, uh, we had, we, I worked with eight writers, four of them from the continent and four of them from the diaspora, two of whom are here today. And the best thing about my task was the range of stories that I had to work with. There was not a whiff of poverty porn or what Lydia just coined, pain porn as well, which is normally um, found in, in stories that if, you, if you've mentioned African writing, that's the assumption that comes up. Um, but yet, the, uh, the, um, the task of editing works of fiction, as these writers will, will attest to, is not an easy thing. Um, in the words of the Korean-American writer Min Jin Lee, what writers do is weird. What, that, there is no getting away from it. We just do what we do is weird. Um, and having said that, I am always jealous of other artists, musicians, dancers, anyone who doesn't need to use words to create art. Because if you're a musician or a dancer, your medium automatically allows the audience to engage with the senses instantly. There's instant engagement with the senses. Writers, on the other hand, use words. And human beings use words for every single thing. We use words to process, uh, we process millions of words every single day, whether it's for work, family, uh, politics, travel, whatever we are doing, we, need, we are using words. And so we are bombarded, uh, and we are also bombarded by words from every conce conceivable form of media. So, hence my jealousy, because writers have to use these words, these self-same words that we process in our minds, to evoke the senses. And that is not an easy thing to do. 
what we want from our readers, we want our readers to feel exactly as our characters do. We want our readers to slip into the story. We want our readers to emerge transformed. And as these writers will attest, trying to pin down a sliver of humanity onto paper, suck the reader into the story, is no mean feat. And it certainly does not happen at the first attempt. I love working with writers who truly want the best story out of themselves, who are brave in their storytelling, and who care about the reach. And that is what I had. So thank you very much for all the effort that you put in. Um, and so it's with great delight now that I hand you over to these young creatives. And my suggestion, um, the order of um, um, reading, uh, we'll start with Marcel, who'll introduce herself and read uh, from her story. And then we'll switch to Lydia, who will be reading a piece of nonfiction. So that, that will be a, a break in the, in the two stories. And then we'll end with Asha, who will also read from her work of fiction. When you're listening to the stories, my suggestion is that you try not to think. Just close your eyes and listen. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Maya. Um, also, just to say, you're a brilliant editor. I think you made my story so much stronger for it, so thank you so much for your you time and advice. Um, so hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming this morning. Uh, my name is Marcel. Um, as uh, Samaya said, I'm a writer, but also I am a freelancer. So one of the things that I do, I work very much in the African literary space, and I'm a co-founder of a literary organization called Africult, where a lot of the work that we do is widening access to African literatures in English and in African languages and schools and at various festivals across the UK and Africa. One of the other things I do is that I'm the lead producer for the Africa Rights Festival this year, which takes place um, annually at the British Library. And this year, if you haven't heard about the festival, it's on from the 5th to the 7th of July. And yeah, the program is exciting, so I just thought I'd put in that shameless plug. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, I'm really grateful to be here. I'm a big fan of uh, Bear Lit Festival, and yeah, so thank you for having, for having us. Uh, my story is called uh, Wanderings, and I'll read a bit uh, from it. I'll read a section from it. Um, before I do, I think I should, because it's Sunday morning, maybe just let you know there's a bit of erotica in it, so uh, maybe it might wake, wake your senses up a bit, but um, hopefully you're able to connect with um, the character. I won't say any more, just, um, yeah, cool. <clears throat> I would linger between each kiss pressing hard into you, my warm breath caressing you as deeply as my tight nipples craved your tongue. But you would always go for my neck while my tongue fought through your hijab and bonnet to untuck your ears. Your teeth would graze my neck, nibble my sharp clavicle, then your lips would melt into my skin and you had me. We didn't know what we were doing. Honestly, we had no idea. There was a beauty when we didn't try and followed the curiosity of our yearning, when the baseness of our desire controlled our fingers, our lips, and our hips. We had no examples, no guide. We were our own teachers and students. We haven't spoken in a while. I miss your soft lips and the faint scent of rose water. I'm sure I could taste its sweet floral residue from the baby hair that peeked out of your wrapped hijab. I miss your palm caressing my clammy cheek in the park after school when the sun blazed like it did during summer. We would wonder what the sun felt like in our Africa, your Somalia, in my Ghana and Egypt. 
You said you remembered how the imam's quavering call would woke you early, along with your grandmother's crying to Allah for her son's return. The two, you said, sounded broken, calling to a God that remained distant and watchful. You were only six at the time, I'd remind you. How could you have known God was disinterested? I scorned you only to learn the true depth of your insight and shaken faith years later. You were so scared. I understood the risk of falling in love, of sinning in sex. The two, sin and sex, were synonymous. Your bottom lip flapped rapidly when the prayer you hoped to pray came as a proverb instead. When you trembled like this, all I could do was hold and feel you gradually crumble within my embrace until your lips found my neck and my palm and your palm rubbed my lower back. I would deliberately stretch so my school jumper lifted slightly, taking short breaths as your fingers clawed past the waistline, pressing softly against my moist kinks. Warmth rushing through my chest, I could hear your heartbeat too. You insisted we seek forgiveness. Is that why Ahmed was brought here, in this small crevice between us that started to crack, then gradually widen? Did sin place this man-body here? I knew you didn't like Ahmed from the way your eyes growled at him. Even though I saw this and knew you let me see this, you let it happen anyway. You look so beautiful in this photo. How have you aged? Do you still speak Somali? Did Ahmed ever learn? He was so fucking obsessed by it. Where are you now? There are nights I cry into this lonely blanket, wrapped tightly in its beautiful darkness. Sometimes I suffocate, sometimes I peel away the skin, sometimes I lick the red blood. I try not to laugh out of wickedness, thinking of what you must be enduring with that thing between your legs, but my resolve has not always been so strong. This wickedness was relief. It allowed me to hate you, allowed me to finally let you go. Should we continue to talk about Ahmed? I don't think my stomach, my stomach can bear it. I have emptied its, co its contents copious times thinking of him forcing himself in you. What does he taste like? Where do your lips lie when he pushes against yours? Locked in the trappings of his fleshy pillows, smothering you? Or do they willingly take an active part? What about the lips between your legs? Do you discuss these things? Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming this morning. I'm so happy to be part of the Bear Lit um, Festival and also to be part of this panel. My name is Lydia. I grew up, I'm Ugandan, grew up in the U.S. Uh, my background is actually in African study. I used to teach, and now I'm a reviewer. And, um, you know, one of the things about this panel, the Unbreakable Bond, the way I imagined it is through watching my parents think about home and process the idea of home. Um, so my nonfiction work is called That Idyllic Home, and uh, it's a commentary on Ugandan immigrants' desire to build back home. Even I have felt a sense of guilt that says, this is your home. Meaning, my kids won't know my language. They won't really know my home. There will be a break 
Therefore, to soothe that convicting voice, I too want to create something tangible that I can point to and say, there's home, there's your culture. You are rooted on firm ground. <clears throat> the sentiment to build can often surpass reason. The number one cause for such feelings, aging moms. Most Ugandans want to build a family home for our aging moms. Oh, my mom is getting old, eh, eh. <laughs> So we designed for her a three, four bedroom home. We add on servants' quarters, a fence, a garage. All the luxuries and conveniences we have experienced, all have seen in the West. The second reason for the building craze is that we deeply long to return home, but at the level of comfort we've gotten used to. I know many people who have built incredible homes in Uganda, houses fit for kings, even if we actually don't live like that. Why? Because building back home, buying land, this is vital. African immigrants in general build huge houses back home, but rent small closets in the diaspora. We might have our moms sleeping in comfort, but we are fine sleeping on a mattress on the floor. It's one way we uplift our families. There's a social phenomenon where we are willing to squeeze ourselves in the smallest spaces possible for the future gratification of living in splendor. But actually, it's not about us living in glory because we've become too comfortable with hard work to enjoy being taken care of. We just want our parents to benefit first from our hard work. They have suffered, so let's pamper them a little. What often goes undocumented is the financial cost and mental stress that accompanies such investments. To build a home in Uganda is a long-term project that usually moves at a snail's pace. I give the example of my parents, who've been building a house on the hill probably since 2001. That's about 17 years. It's taken them a long time. They faced many setbacks because they were not there to supervise the project. Sending money, you find the materials were stolen out of the house. The craftsmanship was very poor. And of course, the cost of materials kept rising. Even if you have someone trustworthy who can supervise the workers, often they, are, they also have their daily responsibilities to attend to. They cannot devote all their time to your project. Yet I empathize with my parents' desire to create a strong foundation for the family. After living in the diaspora for 20 plus years, half of those years at the mercy of a landlord or a bank, Building a home was a critical investment. It often overwhelmed their pockets and trust, but now I know it has been something worth sacrificing for because they have returned to Uganda and have settled into their house. The Akakungulu house is beautiful. It's complete and set on a hill where border borders find it challenging to climb. My parents always say, this is a home all of you can return to. However, as my cousin pointed out, it was a project that had taken a long time and a lot of patience and a lot of money, and I'm sure they were ripped off along the way. 
The first builder pulled out halfway before the housing development could be completed. It was one of those mortgage schemes new to Uganda, so the company wanted their full payment before they could finish the house. The dilemma my parents faced, they had already invested all their money in building a home, but now the builder wanted them to pay it off right away. They had planned to pay it off in installments, however, uh, sorry, they had planned to pay it off in installments. Moreover, they also faced a lot of financial pressure from the bank, not only to find money to pay off the loan, but also to find money to finish the project. If they hadn't paid the loan, the bank would have taken the land and the incomplete house. Under pressure to save their dream home, my parents had to work more hours, had to cut from their livelihood here to finish the house there. And every single time my folks sent something home, materials, money, a tragedy befell it. Someone stole it. Someone didn't put the wiring in. Someone did a botched job. The issues just compounded themselves. One day, my father went by that property and found a wall blocking his view, defeating the entire reason he'd used to purchase the plot. Stop there. So just a quick thing about me, um, I work in freelance, I am a freelance illustrator and I am trying to be a writer, so I don't know if I'm calling myself one fully yet. But, but you are one, that's why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> so I generally tend to write um, flash fictions and I'm working on a children's novel at the moment. Um, and I have a few short stories out as well. And I also co-produce uh, an organisation called Literary Natives, which brings writers of colour together through events and workshops. And right now, mostly online, but we do do kind of bring writers together, which is kind of cool. So today's story uh, is called Submit. And I kind of took the theme of unbreakable bonds to look at the bond that exists between the mind and the body. Because I believe that everything biological is psychological and vice versa. So this story just kind of takes place, it's like a day in the life, and what happens when the bond tries to break itself, even though it's, unbre even though it's unbreakable. Okay, so here we go. Ever since I moved into my attic studio, it's been hard to breathe at night. Maybe it's the way the walls loom over me in the dark, arching as though caught in mid-bow, ready to fall at any moment. Maybe it's the way my bed sits beneath a large, curtainless skylight which... Once the sun has set, opens out into a deep, hypnotic void. My breathing worsens the longer I stare into it. It comes in waves and fills my lungs with its weight. I've gotten into the habit of holding my breath as a form of relief. The moment I exhale, the air flows through me like a calm river. I've been doing this for so long, I can now hold my breath for two minutes. A few months ago, I shared life with a fog. It blanketed itself over me found its way to my pulse and became a refuge that fed off weightless words, masking all that resided without. It crept into me through a dream. A black cat climbed onto my chest and disappeared inside me. I remember having a conversation about it with my sister, not that she'd been listening. Since the dream, any cat I saw was weirdly familiar. 
like a family member that I forgot existed. They would pull at me, bringing with them a sweet, gnawing ache. I never told her it was the reason I had barely moved from my place beneath the skylight. That since the dream, I laid there for days, watching TV shows from my lap, tracking the beds in the background of scenes, the sofas and the blankets with their warm and inviting tones. Each time I would consider heading through the front door, I would be overwhelmed with this need to call into my own solitude and retreat from the world. There is this place in the Saudi desert, just outside Riyadh, called the edge of the world. It's said to have once been hidden underwater. Now it's laid bare, and what remains, from the smooth, sandy ground and jagged, crumbling rocks to where the horizon meets the sky, is covered in a beige haze. The view from the top of the rocks is so endless, the seconds refuse to dissolve into the hours. They clamber one above the other until there is nothing beyond them. I tried to leave the house before these seconds had a chance to stir. It took me three hours to walk out the door. I got stuck somewhere between showering and eating. I stayed glued to the edge of my bed, staring at the space where the carpet meets the wall, thinking about how many minutes it would take to go downstairs, how many minutes to wash a bowl, use it and rinse it once more. I thought about the milk in the fridge, the shoes buried in the cupboard under the stairs, my bag. I would need to find my bag and check my oyster card was still in my coat pocket. I thought about what would follow me out the front door and all that waited for me inside these pale brown walls. Excuse me. The old lady has leaned forward. I guide my eyes past her loud yellow cardigan, fingerless green gloves and dogged paperback to rest back on her face. Her eyes are warm. I will smile at her, but I have forgotten how to ask my mouth to move. My muscles are stationary as a tangle of red, blue and black wires lining the walls behind the curved glass of the carriage. Would it be possible to... She stops, a spark of panic flashing from one eye to the other as she takes in my vacant stare. Never mind, dear. I want someone to pull me upwards and stretch out the crumpled knot of nerves that scratch at the space between my lungs. I want to claw at them, to take an iron and drag it over them. Patience persists, reminding me of its beauty as it melts into the stillness, charging the hairs on my arms. The lady, reabsorbed in her book, is blissfully unbothered by the red signal <coughs> keeping us hostage. She sits further back in her seat, holding the paperback away from her body, perhaps to guard herself from the envy floating off me and pouring onto its pages. I hold my breath. I have been at odds with my body this past week. A dam has broken, flooding my ear canal and my arms that have adopted the strangest relationship to sight. The world is too bright, too sharp, too vivid and too busy. Everything smells too strong and too irritating. I'm surrounded by people whose presence seeps into my pores and I'm unable to drain my mind from, of theirs. I am someone else. Someone that stays too long. Someone that refuses to let a conversation die. That has no strength to read in words that dip, dive and fight over each other. Words whose tastes linger long after they've tripped off the tongue. Long after they've wormed their way into unwilling and resistant ears. I should be at home, curled on a sofa, laptop on stomach, body half-tangled in blankets with thoughts forced, forced into repose. Back home home, there is a headland right where the tip of the horn meets the sea called Cape Gardafool. I came across it a few years ago during a random Google search of the Somali coastline. There aren't many images of the Cape, and those that exist are black and white photographs taken by colonial occupiers. In all the pictures, standing tall and off into the distance is an old lighthouse. Waves can be seen crashing against a cliff not too far from it. Though I have never set foot there, I sometimes see myself standing on those rocks under the shade of the weathered lighthouse, 
letting the grey-tinged blue waters wash off the days and the warm, salty wind carry away their energy until there is nothing left but me. Thank you so much for listening to this Writivism podcast. It is part of our Unbreakable Bond series. We shall be back next week with another podcast.